and welcome again to another exciting instalment of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and on this week's show I'm going to have a look into the effect of diet on the climate. Well, on the environment really. So so do you mean like um, you eat what you eat affects the climate? Like It's really what the production of what we eat and how that impacts the climate. So, you know, whether you eat more dairy or whether you eat more meat or whether you eat yeah. more, you know, fish. Soy. Soy. Yeah, all those things. And what actual- and if you eat carbon dioxide, then you're actually um, contributing to alleviating well, climate you know, change. Well, you know, the plants all eat carbon yeah, dioxide. So exactly. we can, we can you know, maybe take something from their, from their book. We can't obviously turn carbon dioxide into sugar like they can, which would be very handy- it would be um, handy, wouldn't it? You know, if we could get some of those uh, CRISPR kits and figure out a way <laughs> to genetically modify ourselves to directly make sugar from the atmosphere, that would be awesome. I hope we've inspired someone somewhere. <laughs> it, may, it may be a long way off uh, from that ideal world. Claire, what have you got for us? Well, I have a special guest in this week, Dr. Stephen Davis is a mathematics lecturer at RMIT and also um, a research investigator. And he's going to come in and talk to us a bit about his research. So he looks at how um, disease spread through populations of animals and humans. So sort of like epidemiology, but looking at the mathematics behind it. Um, and in particular, he's been brought in um, to look at how the herpes virus is planning, how the government is planning to um, spread the herpes virus through the population of invasive carp. So that's the fish carp within the Murray-Darling. So does he he look at the... How infective it is and how quickly it will progress through the population. Exactly. And potentially, yeah. you know, if it's, I guess if it's quicker, it's better because they can so we'll, develop resistance and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what we'll, we will talk about. Um, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult because um, there's so many carp in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, it's something like 80% of the biomass is carp. So you don't want it to happen too quickly because then you've got a lot of dead fish in a waterway and you need to remove those dead fish really, really quickly. So so Stephen's all about modelling how quickly it's going to spread through the population and what they can do, what sort of, you know, checks and balances that they can put in place to make sure that, you know, it doesn't have any wider effects on the rest of the ecosystem. And he's also just been in Canberra um, at a conference where one of the main aims of the conference is to see how many trucks it's going to take to remove all the carp from the river. So that is going to be my first question. (laughs) The second question is, where will they take them all? (laughs) Where will they take them all? I don't want to be downwind from there. Yeah, besieged uh, uh, politician Barnaby Joyce. This this was really his his, uh, thing this carp virus. So, you know, it's it's all very um, interesting to talk about it now and, yeah, what's going to happen. Well, sounds super interesting and I can't wait to hear what uh, he has to say about the carp problem and the solution, potentially. On with the show. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of discussion about uh, human impacts on the planet that goes around, uh, and specifically our greenhouse gas emissions and their effect on the climate. Yeah, our carbon footprint. Yeah, that's one way people like to talk about it. So it's pretty clear that industrial burning of fossil fuels energy is the main driver of greenhouse gas, gas emissions around the world, coal being among the biggest producers of carbon dioxide specifically. Um, while some people have argued that the use of fossil fuels have provided greater benefits for people than it has caused problems for them, um, it's pretty difficult to measure that without knowing what the final impact is going to be. Absolutely. You know, in the future, yeah. we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. So it's it's a, it's a, it's an unbalanced argument. We can know what we can know what it's done for us, but we can't necessarily what what it will do to us uh, in the end. Um, but one obvious measure of uh, of improvement in human lives is economic development, and the income of the majority of people in the world has increased since industrialization, which is when we started burning fossil fuels at much greater rates than we ever had before. Yeah, a, a huge achievement. Yeah, and this has brought about a related but slightly more complex problem. As people get wealthier, their diet changes. Okay, uh, for, the, for the better or the more nutritious? Well, it just, it's just different. Um, it turns into hamburgers? Well, the biggest and most obvious change is the tendency of people to eat more meat and dairy products as their wealth increases. Sure. So these are the more expensive foods. They're very nutrient-dense foods, so um, there's nothing mm. not nutritious about them. They are, they are very nutritious foods. But the impact on, of that change in diet on the planet is a lot more difficult to measure directly. Um, so... This this Western diet that people sort of tend to shift towards uh, basically contains more meat per head of population and more dairy per person each year than traditional diets in in places like Asia and India and Africa, um, and also a greater percentage or a greater proportion of highly processed foods as well. Um, but it's generally accepted that diets with a higher meat and dairy content contribute to greater greenhouse gas emissions per capita than more plant-based diets. So people have actually done this work. And there are numerous studies that have been carried out around the world measuring the relative impact of different diets on greenhouse gas emissions. And they have shown some clear differences. But, but they've all been separate studies looking at very specific situations and different people have measured different things. So in a review published in November 2016 in PLOS One, which is the online journal, uh, the review was called The Impacts of Dietary Change on Greenhouse Gas Emissions, Land Use, Water Use and Health, a Systematic Review. Uh, they attempted to combine data from 63 studies on the impact of diet on the environment and they were able to compare 210 separate diet scenarios, so right. 210 wow. different kinds of diet from uh -huh. these 63 different studies. Um, they were also, as I said, they were looking at health as well, so health factors, and they, you know, there, there was some interesting stuff came out of that, but a lot of the dietary guidelines that a lot of governments issue are based more on health than they are on the environment. So some of the studies that they were I looking mean, at... I mean, are any based on the environment? Not officially, you right. know, so a lot of there's a lot of you know government information about diet, which is generally about 
your health and well-being rather than the health and yeah. well-being of the planet. Yeah, which is, are you, you going know, to be a drain on the health system well, rather that's, than are you going to be a drain on the environment? That's right. And this is, I guess this is an accounting issue. Nobody does the accounting for what the damage the environment's going to cost later on. So mm. it's one of the reasons it's an probably not. unfortunate truth. Absolutely. But the, but the greenhouse gas emissions, land use and water use, is that's three pretty big measures that you can actually directly apply to the environment. So um, for the most part, they found that diets which use less animal products, either meat or dairy-based, showed lower emissions than and lower uh, land use by area and lower water use, generally speaking. So vegan diets came in the top, which used no animal products at all. Um, they had a median of 45% reduction in greenhouse gases. That's huge. It's quite huge. Wow. Um, some, some was a lot less, and, and, the, and the statistical variation was quite massive as well. So some of it barely changed the greenhouse gas emissions, and some of it changed it far more than 45% in, into the negative. So quite a huge uh, range of things. It depends specifically what they ate, though. Um, also, uh, generally lower land use per you know by area, mm-hmm. um, but um, because the limitations of the studies that they were using, it actually showed that they had higher water use than other kinds of diet, which which may seem a little bit incongruous. But it, as did I they, said, do they explain why they saw that? The, part of the reason is the numbers were quite low. So the number, the number of, of studies, studies of, vegan, of vegan diets was was relatively small compared to other oh, kinds okay. of diets. So there's you know the Mediterranean diet and various different other diets that they looked at. Um, vegetarian diets also showed a reduction around thirty percent lower than current levels of greenhouse gas emissions as a median uh, figure. Similar reduction in land use and a reduction in water use by an average of thirty seven percent. So vegetarian diets are those which avoid meat but still include animal products like dairy and eggs, but that's big reductions. That's or, a big reduction. You know, re- reasonable reductions in um, water use and um, in greenhouse gas emissions dropping by about a third in now, both did cases. Now, did they break the diets down further into specific types of animals included in the diets? Um, like, you know, a, a diet with fish um, and chicken compared with... Um, one that included beef as well or anything? Well, they actually isolated the pescatarian diet. They did, yeah. Which generally, which allows fish and often eggs and dairy, but no red meat or chicken or or other meat animals included in that diet. Um, they, they found that that produced also lower greenhouse gas emissions and used less land and less water than other diets as well. So that was an advantage as well. So they... Notice that even simply reducing meat intake, as in not cutting it out altogether, seemed to have some effect on environmental factors on average. But of course, in statistical analysis, the average doesn't always tell the whole story. So uh, in several European studies and one North American case study, removing meat and dairy and replacing it with certain specific plant-based foods showed higher water and land use and higher greenhouse gas emissions. So it depends what you're substituting. Can can you be a bit more specific? They they, they didn't weren't they weren't specific enough in their um <laughs> in their paper, but That's it's but it's an interesting it's that, an interesting yeah. uh thing. But you know, if if what, they're talking what about what would they've been 
substituting it with? Well, I guess, you know, if they're substituting it with things like nuts rather than things like pulses or, or you know, other mm. sources of protein, then certainly nuts are very high water mm. users. But it's an interesting um, anomaly, I guess, rather than I would say a trend because they did uh, they did identify there was only, I think, six or seven specific studies looking at specific food sources. Sure. Um, and also interesting that it was in Europe. So they were talking about France and Germany, which are very relatively small countries with um, – very dense population. So maybe that has something to do with it. So, um, and this is the difficulty with looking at larger environmental pictures is that if we're talking about specific locations and specific yeah. situations, then where those people get their food may not actually be where they live anyway. So what they import is, you know, impacting the environment somewhere else than they live in the first place. So it's, it's pretty tricky. Um, they did also look at uh, the type of meat being consumed. They found that um, poultry and pigs have less environmental impact than ruminants like cattle. Sure. I mean, you need less land. It's intensive farming. Um, and, you know, also the cattle and the methane issue. The cattle produce methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas. Um, they did, of course, make it. CO2 equivalent. So the amount of methane produced, they broke it down as if it was the same amount of carbon dioxide so they could compare uh, like with like. But, you know, as you say, the high intensity production of these animals um, wasn't really addressed as an issue because, you know, there's obviously uh, different concerns with uh, high intensity production of animals. There's ethical concerns and animal cruelty concerns, which are not part of this study whatsoever so they were saying oh yeah well you could eat more pork but a lot of people might go well I don't want to eat more pork because that's a different issue altogether um but yeah so it's uh it's clear that um regional differences can make a difference to how effective dietary can ch change can be in producing widespread environmental improvements um so while less land may be used to produce food for individual people it won't necessarily be the same farmland that's currently being used for meat or dairy production because, you know, um, for example, grazing land uses a lot less water or, or receives a lot less rainfall than areas that produce crops. And so the farmers who own grazing land can't just sort of switch over of course, yeah. to, uh, to producing um, rain-fed or irrigated crops. <clears throat> um, but it's, pretty clear from from this study it is a really interesting study and if you want to read it there's a lot more detail in there than i've had time to go into uh we today. will post a link to it on the lost in science on 3cr page absolutely we will and uh but it's pretty clear from the study that uh for most people in most places eating less meat and dairy will produce less greenhouse gas gas emissions for them personally but if other consumers step in to take their place, then the personal dietary choices that people make might not actually be enough pressure to drive the necessary reduction in environmental uh, impact that diets are having. So, you know, people are still getting richer. So, uh, the, you know, people who didn't used to eat these things are starting to be able to afford them and they've got nece not necessarily got a reason not to buy them. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting uh, 
field to look into. So absolutely have a, have a read of the paper if you've got the time. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So remember last year when Barnaby Joyce was a little less besieged and talking about releasing a carp herpes virus into the Murray-Darling to deal with the invasive species, the carpfish? Uh, this was also known as Carpageddon, some people might remember. Well, my guest today, Dr. Stephen Davis from RMIT University, is one of the scientists preparing for the possible release of the carp herpes virus. And today he's going to give us an insight into where Carpageddon is at at the moment. Stephen, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you, Claire. So... Can you tell us a little bit more about the carp cleanup, about Carpageddon and what your involvement is? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'm a mathematician and I'm a specialist in using mathematics to model infectious diseases and their dynamics. So how they spread and how they establish and how infectious they are. You are I'm, working with the fun stuff. <laughs> yes. The infectious so diseases. Yeah, I'm all about infectious disease agents, pathogens, viruses, bacteria. Um, and obviously not just in human populations. No. So I'm actually a specialist in wildlife disease. That is so, pretty cool, Stephen. Yeah. My big vision is to try to improve the scientific basis for the management of wildlife disease. And so this potential release of a herpes virus is particularly interesting uh, and particularly exciting to be involved with, actually. Are you one of many scientists helping to look at whether this is a good idea to release this uh, herpes virus um, into the carp population? Yeah, so absolutely. So um, there's a whole range of fields that are involved here. So I work with uh, virologists at the Australian Animal Health Laboratory. Um, there are hydrologists involved because it's all about a river system. So water flows actually play a huge role in just the movement of the fish and the likely spread of the virus throughout the catchment. There are also people looking at how dead fish decay and rot yeah. <laughs> and how that affects the water quality as well. So for people who might not live near um, the Murray-Darling River Basin, mm -hmm. um, how much of an issue is carp in that system? Yeah, so... They, they've had a huge impact. They're regarded mostly as disgusting. Mm. Uh, and, they're, you know, Barnaby Joyce would call them mud-sucking fish. <laughs> and they do. This, this is called roiling, actually. and they Roiling? Roiling is the technical roiling. term. That's a good word. And <laughs> that, uh, that refers to the way they feed on the bottom of the, of the river. And I was out there um, in the Lachlan catchment recently, and you could see this fish feeding and sending up a cloud of mud and, 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 and dirt and just the, the visibility in the water is terrible. So they have a huge impact and they're reaching up to 90% of the biomass in some parts of the river system. Yeah. So that is a uh, huge amount of 
biomass. Yes. <laughs> 90% is huge. So if you go fishing in some parts of the Murray-Darling, you only catch carp. Um, mm. And, you know, they're huge. They're big. How? And they're ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and they also don't taste very good, right? Yeah, that's right. So because they feed on the bottom of the river and they suck all of this mud into the, into their, through their, into their system, they taste like mud. Uh, so some people do eat them still, but that requires you to put them in a bath for three days and, you know, let the... Flush, flush, <laughs> flush them out. Yeah, they, they flush the mud out of their, Flushed of their carp. flesh. Yeah. All right. So you were talking about um, you do mathematical modelling of how disease um, spreads through wildlife. Yes. Um, so in this case, it's releasing a herpes virus, mm -hmm. which is currently not in the Australian biota, currently no. not in the environment, putting it into the environment to specifically kill the carp. Yeah. We know that it's not going to kill anything else, do we? Yeah, that's very, that's very well tested. Uh, so at the Animal Health Laboratory, they have looked at the species specificity of this virus and it is extremely species specific. You will not infect anything else except carp. Yeah. And that's been, you know, experimentally proven. And so in terms of the modelling that you've done, um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe your preliminary modelling and what yeah, you sure. hope for? Yeah, sure. So there are two purposes to using mathematical modelling to um, look at the behaviour of this virus once it's released. The first one is to advise the Australian government on, you know, what are the likely long-term impacts of this virus? You know, if we decide to release it, what are the benefits that are going to come? How effective is a virus going to be in reducing the abundance of carp and improving the health of the rivers? And, and you know, that's something that mathematical modelling is really good for because you can make long-term predictions without doing any experiments, right? You can, yeah, you don't have to actually release the virus to advise on the likely consequences of it. The second aspect is strategic modelling. So the idea is that the virus will be first released in the Lachlan catchment, mm -hmm. which is uh, in New South Wales. And, you know, there you're asking questions about where in the catchment should we release the virus? When? Uh, what sort of water flows would be optimal to release the virus? Um, so very, you know, very tactical questions about, you know, the actual release, how you, how you would actually do it logistically. Okay. And also... Is the herpes virus similar to um, like a human herpes virus in that how how is it caught how to um, how to carp catch it from one another? <laughs> is it an STI? That's a great question, Claire. <laughs> so um, not really. So we're going to verify this in um, in laboratory experiments, but it's not a waterborne virus. The fish need to touch physically touch each other. Uh, so bit like how we get cold sores and fish kissing <laughs> it's a little bit like fish kissing so <laughs> they develop lesions around their gills and when other fish come into contact with that that's where the virus is being excreted and so physical contact will transmit the virus from infected fish to susceptible fish right okay so it isn't it isn't something that's waterborne it's not something that's going to be as easy as put it in the water and it'll go no so we would be releasing live infectious fish at certain places at certain places right yeah. 
You are listening to Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network and my guest today is Dr. Stephen Davis from RMIT University and we are talking about the potential carp cleanup project on the Murray-Darling. So Stephen, you were in Forbes last week for a meeting of the great minds of (laughs) this project. Tell us what it was about and uh, what sort of discussions are happening at the moment. Yeah, so... um Several of the scientists um, went to Forbes, and we were, we were really trying to get to know the local, um, the local fishermen and um, the local people who would be involved in any cleanup operation. Should we release the virus? It's not a done deal, Claire. There is a lot of legislative processes to go through before we can even think about releasing this virus. And That's just great that this is all happening before it's even on the table as, yeah. a, as a potential thing. Yeah. I mean, you need as much information as possible. Yeah. So actually, this is the most science that has gone into a, a decision-making process for any biocontrol agent anywhere in the world. Wow. So Australia is actually kind of leading the way in terms of looking at the science and advising the decision-makers on whether it's a good you know, whether it's a good decision or not. So you're saying we've come a long way since um, the cane toads? Yes. <laughs> we do not release vertebrate biocontrol agents anymore. <laughs> we still release invertebrates. And, mm. um, yeah, obviously we're considering releasing a virus. Um, so you're in Forbes and you're, um, you're talking to community members and, um, and farmers as well, did you say? Yeah, local fishermen, actually. And local fishermen. Yeah. Um, and how are they responding to it? What's, what's the community <coughs> saying? Yeah, I've got to say it's extremely positive. It's surprisingly how, um, how into <laughs> these people are um, in terms of um, releasing the virus and reducing the abundance of carp. And I guess that's a, that's a sign of how horrible they are and how, how, how detrimental they are to our, to our rivers. Um, so people are really for releasing the virus and reducing the impacts of the carp and having a healthier river. You're in Forbes because this is the potential first place that the virus yeah. is going to be released. Is that, right. is that right? <clears throat> yeah. So if it goes ahead, it will be first released uh, in the Lachlan catchment. And so the, the meeting was really about... If there was a mass die-off of the fish and the natural river system didn't absorb those decaying fish, how could we, how could we clean up um, any, <laughs> you know, the, the dead carp, excess dead carp? Um, um, as yeah. in how many trucks are you going to need? Yeah, so questions around, you know, how many truck, how many tonnes of carp <laughs> are we going to have to get rid of? And look, um, it's interesting because these people have... Uh, seen mass dice of carp before. Um, it's a highly ephemeral river system. Over 70% of the, of the river system will dry up. So that's what, that's what I mean by ephemeral. It comes and goes. There are wet periods. There are dry periods. And there during are carp the- periods. <laughs> there are non-carp periods. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's during the flooding events that carp really take off and spread throughout the river and right. uh, and, and invade. Yeah. Mm. But um, during the dry periods, um, they will overnight have um, masses of dead fish. And it's not because the, complete, the water completely dries up, it's because the oxygen levels drop down too low. So um, dead fish means less oxygen 
in the water. So one of the big concerns around the release of the virus is if you do get buildup of decaying carp, that decaying process can suck the oxygen out of the water. And in that case, it kills everything, not just the carp, but um, the, the native other fish. 10 to 20% yes. of biomass. <laughs> Whatever's left. Whatever's left. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's really a concern. And the potential cleanup is uh, about avoiding that sort of drop in oxygen levels. But it's also about, you know, taking care of water quality because a lot of people use the water from the river as their source of drinking water. Yeah, so it's absolutely important that um, we protect those sources of, of, of water and we protect this, the, you know, the sensitive areas which are you know, breeding habitat for the native fish. Um, wherever there might be um, you know, high ecological impact, um, we've been thinking about what a clean-up operation would look like. And I have to ask, so if the government takes everything that you've said and all the scientists have said on board and, um, you know, the necessary legislative things are put in place, what sort of timeline for the release are we looking at? Yeah, sure. So we have to prepare our advice by the end of this year and then um, the leader of this, uh, of this national carp control plan, uh, a guy called Matt, We'll, we'll put it all together and advise the government on whether to release or not. Uh, so the earliest would be 2019, probably late in 2019. But I've got to say, Claire, we have to get agreement across a huge number of... Stakeholders. Stakeholders, <laughs> um, including, you know, including um, organisations like the EPA. Uh, and so, um, you know... It's a long one, one thing I realised was that um, the science we're doing is actually relatively easy <laughs> compared to um, the kind of negotiations that will have to go on to ensure everybody is happy and satisfied with, um, you know, the legislation requirements around cost-benefit analyses, uh, risk analysis. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that have to be done. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, at the earliest, it would be 2019 but it's probably later. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming in today and letting me uh, carp on about <laughs> Carfageddon. Sorry, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to seeing what the scientific um, analysis and what the modelling about um, releasing the carp virus, herpes virus, turns out to be. So um, it'll be great to have you in in the future when um, some of your modelling is um, released as well. You're very welcome, Claire. It's been great. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in 
again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.